Hello, dear listener. Thank you for downloading, streaming, and listening to the Spooky Davis podcast. My name is Rick Guzman. I'm an improv comedian from New York who still can't improvise due to the coronavirus, but that's okay because I'm real excited about for this episode. Joining me today is the lady behind the beeps, the boops, the buttons, and the bops. She's our Alabama enforcer herself, Chelsea Bennington. How are you, Chelsea? I am good. I am on my second coffee of the day, which is conservative for me. Pretty much, yeah. I've not been drinking much coffee since I haven't been working because our, as our guest well knows, um, there's something about when the production pays for the coffee. So only when I'm doing set dressing as a day job, that's when I need to get caffeinated, especially on our long night shoots. It tastes better when someone else um, gives it to you or someone else pays for it? I'm, I'm, I'm just a New York guy. If it's free, it's for me. But I'm very honored to have our guest today because uh, we've spoken about it on this podcast before. Nightmare on Elm Street is my favorite horror franchise. And our guest was in my favorite installment of that franchise. And over the years, there have been many Elm Street kids, but my personal favorite has always been Kincaid. So joining us from Elm Street 3 and 4 is Mr. Ken Sagos himself. Hello, Ken. Hello, how are you? And thank you for that wonderful introduction. I see the check, the, the check didn't bounce. So. <laughs> oh, that voice, there's something about that voice. That's so cool. <laughs> um, how have you been holding up during the pandemic, sir? I've been holding up well. I've been trying to find the positive in it. And the positive in it was that it helped me to be creative and to write more, you know? And so uh, I'm glad we can see that light, that light, you know, because that whole pandemic was a nightmare. It so, certainly was. And, and I've also kind of relished in there, for all the negatives, and there were many, there are some positives. It's, it's the small victories that get us through. Uh, Chelsea and I, we perform improv in New York City. And one of the positives is when you don't have to catch a train home right after a big sporting event lets out a Madison Square Garden full of drunks, that is a relief. But there is a light of the tunnel. One day we'll get back to performing in front of people. You got to let me come out there and do some improv with you guys. Don't, don't say it if you don't mean it, Ken. I mean it 100 <laughs> I mean it. I oh. Because we do horror-themed improv and we kill each other to end the scene. So you have you to kill me, but <laughs> you'll, no, you'll no, be we... the rare exception. We we will not allow for you to die. <laughs> you will... no, I'm saying if you pantomime taking my head off with a with an improv chainsaw, I'd be thrilled. <laughs> oh man! But here here's the part of the show, Ken where uh, in doing my little research, we find out if the, the internet is true. It says that uh, you were born and raised in Georgia. Is that correct, sir? That is correct. Cool, cool. So uh, tell us a little bit about you know, your, your formative years. Uh, were you always a creative person or is, is that something that maybe developed a little bit into your life? I believe so. I mean, I <clears throat> I came from a very rich family in 
mine and love, but we were very poor in finance. So, you know, and I watched who I think was the greatest creator in my life was my mother because she always found a way to make sure her children had food, to make sure that we was taken care of with no money and everything. So you had to be creative at that time. And sometimes creativity is what kept me out of depression. And so, um, so yes, I, I, I want to say I came out being creative because she know I would have come out saying I'm from Beverly Hills, but I wasn't. <laughs> uh, in, in Georgia, so I'm originally from Alabama and I, my, I have family in Savannah, Georgia, and I went to school there and I, I love Georgia. What, what part of Armstrong Georgia is it that State. you're from? Well, did you go to Armstrong State? No, I went to SCAD. I went to uh, Savannah College of Art and Design. Yeah, I have a niece that's going there now. Oh, that's awesome. It's a great school. Um, had a lot of friends that went to Armstrong, though. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I had friends at Armstrong and Savannah State. Oh, nice. Were you close to Savannah? I, I can't remember oh, where. Stockbridge. I was born in Stockbridge, which is close to Atlanta. Closer to Atlanta. Okay, that makes sense. My grandmother was actually good friends to Daddy King which was the father of Dr. Martin Luther King. So yeah. I, grew wow. up, I grew up in that atmosphere and met him as a very, very young child. Wow. And, you know, and I had an aunt who was good friends to Malcolm X. So I was caught in the middle. <laughs> wow, that is so cool. Well, I, I think somewhere in the middle of, of of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X is the way to be. You get like the best of both worlds and you take the important lessons from both and go forward with that. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. That is true, that is true. I grew up on the uh, outskirts of the civil rights movement. So I got a chance to see it, not just see it, but live it. And so I think that's where a lot of my richness in my creativity and my writing come from because as an early child I had a white friend that we could not allow people to know that we were friends. Wow. That is a little rough. That, that is a little rough because I definitely remember growing up in Queens and having friends of all ethnicities that just as a kid I didn't care who I brought home to play with or whose home I went to to play with because they were just my friend from the schoolyard and we all liked the same toys. Well it reminds you that this you know all of this was not that long ago because mm -hmm. you know the uh, America does have quite the um, reputation of acting like everything that was awful that happened was hundreds of years ago when really it's you know we still have you know people around different generations that have been through these type of ordeals so it just shows you again how fresh this still is yes in actuality uh we'll get on it later that's what my book is about is basically yesterday is today you know yeah if you, if you put the pictures of yesterday together with the pictures of today, you really can't tell which is which. Yeah. 
Yeah, I know. I that's that's all I have right there. Just yeah, that's true. <laughs> You're not wrong, Ken. You're not wrong at all. It's 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 much fresher than it should be. And the main difference is nowadays everybody has a camera to say <laughs> the way it went down today. That's how it went down before, but nobody was filming anything. <laughs> yeah, right. the, the famous word, I got you now. <laughs> we didn't have it back then because yeah. it wasn't in the camera. So now it's, I got you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> very, very true. So yeah, you mentioned writing and you have uh, directed a lot. Did that, uh, was, was, were all of those interests simultaneous? To acting or did one start before uh, one of the others? I think act, acting actually started first because as a child I remember uh, back then we was doing pantomiming so which is lip singing now but we called it pantomiming then and I used to pretend that I was one of the temptations I was uh, you know I was uh, all of those characters one of the Isley brothers Marvin Gaye um, I, I used to love pretending I was Stevie Wonder or Ray Charles, you know, so, because when you, I always pretended I was one of the greats. And, um, and when I first uh, arrived in California, I did a show called Putting on the Hits. And I, I remember played, that show. And I played Louis Armstrong. And oh, so, snap. <laughs> so I always enjoyed watching the greats in both areas and, and, and pretending that I was them, you know. For any of our, our younger listeners out there, in the early days of video and MTV, lip syncing became terribly popular. So syndicated shows would have these lip sync broadcasts and people would dress up and lip sync along to wherever, whatever, whatever song they felt like it. And it, it, it was... I guess somewhat cabaret-like in its uh, mentality. I, I don't remember you specifically, Tim, but I remember one woman kind of dressing up half as a woman and half David Bowie and doing a duet where she turned back and forth. Yeah, yeah. And then Solid Gold would come on and I'd be told to go to bed. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, and um, uh, then Michael Jackson did, um, um, a guy came on getting Michael Jackson, he would be one way, and then he would turn and he would be John Lemon, I think, the other way. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's it was really great because That's it was cool. um, um, Michael Jackson, Ivory, and Ebony. Uh -huh. And that's what he did. And it was really great. It was, it allowed you to become the artist of yesterday. You know. So, so you mentioned going to LA and becoming an actor. Uh, prior to uh, getting involved with the Nightmare on Elm Street, were you much of a horror fan? No. <laughs> when I auditioned for A Nightmare on Elm Street, I had no idea what it was. Um, I will say this, when I first moved out here, I got a job at Universal Studios as a security guard. And I met one of my favorite idols from my favorite horror film, which was Alfred Hitchcock. And um, 
I had always loved the birds and I've always wanted to do a movie similar to the birds. And I think I have a wonderful idea that I'm going to put in creativity soon. Ooh, I love that. I did, um, I was reading uh, an interview that you did a few years ago and you mentioned, you, it's funny because I actually have it pulled up right now and you mentioned that you <laughs> love the birds and I'm like, oh my God, and he's saying that to me now. Um, but um, I saw that, you know, like you said, you weren't super uh, into the horror genre before joining Nightmare on Elm Street and then Nightmare on Elm Street was with it being in the, you know, 80s, such a, such a game changer that you noticed that, you know, out of the genres, horror fans have been so supportive and did you did you do like a lot of have you done a lot of horror conventions and stuff like that like are have you been really involved in that community i have i i you know i got into it a few years back and i i do at least uh one about two a year but this year i'm going to do a little more because i'm raising funds as you know mm -hmm. um but I love it because you interact with the fans. And I, I always say when I meet the fans at these conventions, because they run, run to you as if you are the one on the pedestal. And I appreciate that. But I have to let the fans know that if I'm on a pedestal, it's because of you. And I cannot say how much I appreciate you, the fan, because you put me here. Mm -hmm. And that I give the fans my highest humble appreciation. You know? Yeah, it's it's so true. I think it's it's one of my favorite things about the horror community in general is that the, the genre itself is so dark and bloody and gruesome and sometimes has social commentary, sometimes has really dark themes but they're all teddy bears <laughs> like everyone just loves each other and is supportive of each other and gets so passionate about meeting those people who met who made them feel a certain way on screen and it's just it's so cool i have not been to a horror convention before but i i'm gonna go to one that you're gonna be at honestly <laughs> one of these days chelsea we're we're, we're vaccinated things are opening up Fangoria is back in publication. It's only a matter of time. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, the horror community, you know, in my opinion, is the most supportive community of them all. They support you. They respect you. And, you know, it's um, the horror community is a lot of pure love. Underneath all that horror, underneath all that craziness, it's love and it comes out and that's one of the and that's what i had to find out you know it's creativity you know? yeah well it helps that you played one of the arguably one of the best characters in the elm street franchise you're i mean you're rick's favorite <laughs> and and it definitely fits in the dream warriors and i think that's one of the reasons why it resonated with me and 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 many people uh, since I first watched it as a kid about to go through puberty. Uh, first, it, 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 it mirrored my love of X-Men comics. Here are these young people going through changes, feeling really, really 
disconnected from the people that don't believe them about what they're going through. Uh, so they band together. They're choosing their own family. And, uh, and this is certainly me projecting on Kincaid a lot. Here's the wise ass who's using comedy to mask his pain and, and also like keep people at a distance. So I definitely resonated with that because you had all the best line, Ken. Like, oh crap, now my dick is killing me. I'm on the floor. It still gets me. So what, what was the process of uh, getting that part? Was there any room for improvisation or was everything that, oh, oh, were all the great lines on the page? They wasn't all on the page, but I would say 90% of them was on the page because originally, from my understanding, Kincaid was not a black guy. He was white. And so I, um, I, I'm sure you have heard the story of how I got to go. I didn't want to be there. I literally did not want to be at the audition because it was an audition that you're familiar with the breakdown. And for those who are not familiar with the breakdowns, that's something that they sent out to the, the, the agents for their actors to come in and read for something. And they give a description of the character. And the description of Ken K was nothing like how I looked. And so my agent wanted me to go on this audition for something called Nightmare on Elm Street. Look, I told him I got to go to court. I got to face a judge. It's raining outside. I got my own nightmare going on. So, <laughs> so, and I didn't want to be there, but he convinced me to go anyway. And so I lost the case. I had to pay a lot of money. So when I got there, it was pouring down rain. I didn't want to be there when I, and it was late. So when I eventually walked in the room with Chuck Russell, the casting director, my attitude showed I didn't want to be there and I didn't give a shit. So, <laughs> and I think they believed I was acting. <laughs> so, and, but Chuck, and I told him, a black guy wouldn't say this. And he say, say it how a black guy would say it. So I cussed Chuck Russell out. And not in direct, but in my own little way. I cussed right. him out. In character, in character. Well, they thought it was in character. But <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so when I got home, which was about two hours later because I had to catch several buses, my answer machine was lit up and it was from my agent. He had kept calling. So I finally picked up the phone and he said, Ken, what did you do? And I said, David, I told you I didn't want to go there. And then he said, they loved you. <laughs> and that's literally how I got the road. That's amazing. <laughs> which, which makes perfect sense because Right when you meet Kincaid, he doesn't want to be there. He doesn't right. want to be in group. Like, Fuck you. You go to sleep. <laughs> just, just, just wise ass in his way through everything. And, and then you get to the scene where he's in the quiet room, terrified, keeping himself awake. 
about how he ain't go to gonna go to sleep. It, it, I'm getting goosebumps talking about it. It just resonates so well. But when you got the part and 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 you're starting in and you're meeting the cast, when did you discover that it was kind of a big deal what you're being a part of? I didn't feel it was a big deal until maybe when the movie came out. I did not know. I uh, <clears throat> I was honored because my very first scene, I was talking about this yesterday, the very three scenes, you would not believe it. The first scene was with me and Lawrence Fishburne. And my first words was, yeah, so I don't have to look at your ugly ass all the time. Mm -hmm. So my first words that I said in Nightmare on the Elm Street, the second scene that we did was me in the quiet. And the third scene that we did, no, the second scene was in the, when he took me out, where I, I got crazy with the group. And the third scene was me in the quiet. So those were the three scenes that I did first. And what Chuck Russell did, which I think was brilliant, he got all of the actors, us young actors together for a party, a party and a gathering, a couple of, times before we shot the film. So we all knew each other. We had all become friends. We had all invested in the friendship that we had. So when we was on that set together, we wasn't just acting. We was a group of young people who cared about each other. And that little thing brought out realism about it. And so, and I think that worked so well. And also, we never met Helder Landing Camp. I didn't meet Helder Landing Camp until she came that day. That was my first time meeting her. Wow. And so, Again, so that's, I, a, that's another thing that resonates on the screen. This the bond of these, these outcast characters. And I definitely wanted to ask you about your interaction with Lawrence Fishburne because uh, it, it definitely helps to have two African-American characters relating to each other in a way that maybe some of the Caucasian characters wouldn't because like you said right before that line he calls you cool breeze and you just snap back at him much like you know I did on the playground the first time I was watching this film just cutting it up and ranking on your friends and you don't mean any harm by it you're just fucking with people so uh any other good memories of Lawrence Fishburne please Lawrence Fishburne was like the big brother to me on the set when he was there Lawrence Fishburne taught me how to do physical acting and he we had a relationship a big brother little brother while we was there and I think the fact that he was there and for him to say the words he said, it, there was a kinship. And, um, and, and to this day, I'm always grateful to Lawrence Fishburne because he gave me something that I have, a part of acting that I have learned to use because I didn't know, I was really throwing people around and, and up there and he pulled me to the side and said, look, 
young bro, <laughs> you don't have to do all of this. And he told me that. And it was so much easier to act from then on, you know, because he said, give the illusion and let us do the work. And that's how it happened. Okay, so the production goes forward. Uh, Kincaid survives. And we've talked to uh, an African-American comedian. Yes. Everybody was shocked. The black man survives. <laughs> we, we've had a friend of our show, a, a comedian from New York, Gregory Hall, and he was saying that, you know, as a young black viewer, seeing characters that look like him uh, in this film, in movies like Night of the Demons, survive it makes a world of difference so again not being much of a horror fan like you know wait like did, were other people telling you the scope of that uh, event the fact that you made it through you talk shit to freddie you didn't back down you whooped his ass a bit too i mean you, you helped be a not part enough. of bringing him down. Not enough. They didn't let me whoop his ass enough. <laughs> you know, I should have whooped his ass like Snoop Dogg and Compton. <laughs> you did call him a pussy. That's a lot more than people did in two films prior to you. <laughs> yeah. And that was an add-in, though. That was mine. That, that, that was improv. <laughs> that was not in the script. Nice. <laughs> so you, you mentioned your mom uh and her being a big part of your life uh what was her reaction to the film and did she ever get to watch the film with an audience or with you to, no, to see her baby boy on screen i don't think my mother ever saw that film. i i came from a very religious family I don't think they ever saw that film. I know the person, um, there's another great story, a true story that I tell is that when I first got the movie and I was calling back to Georgia, my family and tell I've been offered this movie and it, I, and it, it, it cursed a lot. <laughs> and a lot of my, um, the church people did not want me to do the film. The pastor didn't want me to do it. It was demonized, as he said. And we had this elderly lady that was in church. I was, she had to have been in her late 80s or 90s or something. And I called her. I think I called her Granny. And I called her and I told her. Imagine this lady always had a hat on her head, a white coconut cake hat. She was the mother. She had sat in this chair in church for years. And she was never without a Bible. And I called her and she said, and I told her that they didn't want me to do this movie. And she said, wait a minute, baby, let me put my Bible down. <laughs> and she put the Bible down and she said, mama back now. And she said, now, baby, do the movie pay. And I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> oh man so that was my word and then I think it was a couple of years later I went to the church and the pastor was 
he was saying how he needed they needed money for the roof and they felt that I had a lot of money and they wanted me to give some money and this same elder lady said baby don't you give them one red mm -hmm. penny mm -hmm. <laughs> one red penny because you would and she said to him you don't want him to give no money that came from the devil do you <laughs> Love that. <laughs> hey, she, she's not wrong. I was about to say, I bet the collection plate lingered in front of you for a little bit longer after the movie was in. Hey, she said, don't give them one red penny or something. <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, so then with the success of Elm Street 3, you've survived. Elm Street 4 is announced, you're back. And then Rennie Harlan does you dirty. <laughs> Too dirty. Oh, it, 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 it's like, oh, well, not, now we have to take him out first. But again, you got to drop a car on Freddy, say, take that motherfucker. And then, then my, my, my favorite character got got. So, what, what was that process like for you? It was certainly a smaller check. Oh, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> Randy Harlan, you something. That's more of a Bob Shea thing, but anyway. I, I, um, no, actually, I think Bob Shea wanted me in that longer. And um, mm. what I think as a writer and being creatively, I have to defend them. It's because they was trying to get rid of the old and go on with the new. Yeah. And I think because Patricia Arquette was not coming back, and before you ask, I do not know why she did not come back. <laughs> now know. I know how many times you've been asked that. <laughs> I do not know why she was not coming back. You know, but I think if she had stayed, she we would have been in there longer. Mm. But I cannot talk about this without saying Tuesday night came in and really did a tremendous job mm -hmm. with uh, Kristen. She made it her Kristen and she and you and she did not skip a beat. No. She, you did not skip a beat when she was doing that. And she moved on and she continued to do it. And um, so from then well this is a phone. See, tell you, I don't know how to do all these things. Oh, no, it's okay. We can still hear you. Okay. So, um, so it, it, that's just what it was. And, you know, when I came back and when they got rid of me, and it was a sad moment, and Robert and I, we was talking, he said, Kenny, you know, this is a proper emotional moment. And there was tears in our eyes. And he said, I don't want to see you go. And I said, he said, are you okay? And I said, yeah. He said, tell me what you're thinking about. <laughs> and the honest to God said, I'm thinking about my checks. <laughs> I mean, fair. It's, it's, it is a job, like, you know. <laughs> well, six weeks on the first one and, you know, a week on the second one. So. Yeah. But, yeah. But it was a great, it was a great thing. It took us a week to film that junkyard scene. Oh, wow. That makes sense. Yeah. Mentioning uh, Robert England, um, what was your uh, uh, 
workplace uh, relationship with him over the course of both films. The one thing that I, I, I say this and I know people do not want to believe it. Number one, I was not in the mix like everybody else mm -hmm. on the set. Um, but Robert England held the Lennon Cap and Lawrence Fishburne, they was like, for me, they was the big brothers and big sister to me. And they was wonderful. And if, if asked anybody, if you spend 10 minutes with Robert England and listen to him and really, uh, you know, digest what he is saying, you feel like you just sit in on a speech at Harvard because he's a very knowledgeable person in this industry and has worked with all the great legends of yesterday and a Shakespearean actor. So his talent has never been used to the limit that he has yet. And so I was blessed to be on a set with so much history to absorb so much talent from others and to learn from others. And to and then with the cast around me, you know, we was all friends. So there was never any um, any negative that was going on, even though there was some, I understand it was going on in the production. Right. Not with the cast. It was not with me. It was not with the cast. We was it it was it was a beautiful set. And it was a beautiful ensemble and I had a great time. I wished I could have been more uh, involved and going out and hanging with everybody. But my mind was in writing, writing. When I finished my scene, I was going back trying to write a script or something. Oh. And that's what I was. Cool. Before we get into your writing, again, doing a little bit of research. You also were on one episode of what is my favorite sitcom of all time. You, you were on Night Court, too. <laughs> and I love that show. Yes, I, I, that, I was on Night Court. I, that, I enjoyed it. I, you know, I enjoy, um, you know, and talking with you, I enjoy stand-up comedy. You know, I, I did stand-up as well. So, I can uh, see that. <laughs> I did the Apollo three times. Nice. <laughs> and that's a rough room. That's a rough room. You get on the Apollo, you do two jokes that work, and you get the hell off. <laughs> Leave them hanging. Be like, all right. <laughs> yeah, you get on it, you praise them, and you get the hell out. Yeah, because there's history weighing on you, and New York crowds aren't easy to begin with. But mm -hmm. the Apollo, the Apollo. <laughs> Once I get the Apollo, I was through. I was through. I've done my job. So. <laughs> Once, once you're like James Brown has sweated on these on this stage, who I I'm I I I couldn't I couldn't no, no. been in the audience but the stage no unless it unless it was a set decorating thing no with a microphone in my hand no, no I'm not the one you know I I was uh, back to night court you know it was so strange. Uh, funny and I was so blessed because I was playing another actor that I admire so and I was supposed to be in the LeVar Burton from the Star Trek series and so 
I just really been blessed. So I just want to give that homage now. That's one of the reasons, the perks of doing night court and to do that particular role because that was Jordy from Star Trek. And that show's definitely one of the ones that kind of uh, paved the road for my love of comedy. Like laughing as a kid, watching things, and then going back to watch it as an adult and go, I probably shouldn't have been watching this show as a kid. <laughs> there, yeah. there, there was some stuff that was it was a, a little little risque for that 9.30 hour or that syndicated 5 o'clock hour. And then, you know, you go through puberty. It's like, oh, that's what John Larroquette meant. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but but si since that time, you've been uh, much more involved in writing and directing and, and theater and a lot of acclaim with that. Uh, so would you please tell us about the latest project that you're funding? Well, my latest project is called The Secret Weapon. And yesterday is today. And it's about um, these children, the courage of the children in 1963, who actually gave the power back to the civil rights movement. And you talk about Freddy Krueger, the man that they had to face in Alabama. And I think, uh, Chelsea, you said you're from Alabama. Mm -hmm. They had to chase uh, uh, deal with Bull Connor, and I just asked mm -hmm. people to look him up. Bull B U L L C O N N O N Connor. Mm -hmm. Look him up. He was one of the first Freddy Kruegers. Yeah, he, he was. Yeah. He was not to be played with, but the children went head to head with him. And one of the reasons I'm so passionate about doing this story. It's because of the history, because people don't know that it was children that gave the momentum back to the civil rights movement. It was children that gave the momentum back for John Lewis walking across the bridge in Selma. It was the children that gave the momentum back to the I Have a, I Have a Dream speech in Washington, D.C. And it was the children that gave the momentum for the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Most people don't know that. And so I wanted to write a short film about this, which I hope that could correlate into a feature film. But, you know, and so I'm asking for the support of the horror family to buy some of the perks. And I have some, some special perks for horror friends, horror family only. I'm personally signing autographs, I'm signing a postcard, you get a dog tag, and you get a wristband. And I'm signing all of those. You know, um, don't don't forget the bookmark, Ken, don't forget the bookmark. bookmark. And if you came to a convention and tried to get all these items, they would be 200 or more, because I'm signing them. And I'm doing whatever I can legally <laughs> raise, <Fair>. raise, <laughs> raise money for my short film. Yeah. So I, I'm I'm asking them to please go to the sagoscompany.com and 
purchase these items. I'm going to sign them personally to you. I'm going to send them out to you myself. And, you know, and I really, really need the support. I need to get a minimum of 300 to 500 sales. Mm. Right now, I just have about 24. But, you know, we can get there. I still have about 45 more days to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this, oh, go ahead, Rick. It's on Indiegogo. Like I said, we're going to put the link in the episode. So on your phone, whatever you're listening to, you can boop directly over there. You're going to see the banner of uh, young Ken Sagos, where it says, for the horror fans. Uh, I got the postcard and the bookmark myself. And the speed at which you sent this out, Ken, was astounding. Because, you know, <laughs> with all the, the, the sabotage going on with the United States Post Office, I got this much sooner than I was expecting. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the rule is, is that because my crowdfunding is running until June, mm -hmm. I don't have to get this out until July, but I want people to know I'm doing all this myself. I don't have a staff. I don't have anything. Right. I'm doing this myself. I'm up at two and three o'clock in the morning begging. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and so I, I know, and I'm asking the horror fans, and you know what? I've called some. I, I will call you. A lot of people say, I don't believe this. You give me your telephone number. I call you. <laughs> and, you know, but we ain't going to call and be on the phone for no two or three hours. Yeah. <laughs> Disclaimer there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I, I, I will call you. I, um, <laughs> it's funny. I called this one guy. I did not know he was way over in Australia. Oh, so now I ask, where are you? <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, I think this is, you know, uh, you telling the story about uh, Bull Connor. De I definitely, yeah, he's a he's a prominent figure in in Alabama history, especially because of how awful um, he was. But I never really knew about uh, the the children protest. And yes. I saw on your Indiegogo that uh, 2023 marks the 60th anniversary of it. And I'm, I, I'm so excited to just hear more about this because I'm sure you can imagine with all the politics at play, this wasn't the part of history I learned about in Alabama. You know, we, we downplayed in public school how much Alabama um, was a, you know, such a, landmark I guess um in like so much racial violence in the in the civil rights movement that um you know these these were not things that we learned too much about so it's so inspiring to see someone telling those stories of those those teenagers in Birmingham and and the good there that you know there were people that were you know fighting for this and um it's just it, it's so just from a personal standpoint it's so it's so wonderful to hear and i'm very excited to support this yeah. and share it with my fellow southern friends who i think will also love this you know and what is so scary is that nothing is coming back around yeah but know this in every major change almost almost every major change the one thing that has changed it was children yeah children have been yeah. the greatest weapon children because children don't see color That's we true. we intervate we in, in invade their minds and make them see color 
Children don't. Young people don't. Look at Black Lives Matter now. You know, it's not just Blacks out there. It's everybody is out there. Mm -hmm. So, and, and that's why I think this story is so, so important. And for another thing for the listeners, one of the reasons that I have to raise so much money is because I am using children. I don't want to use mm -hmm. no 25 mm -hmm. year old and say he's 14. That doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a good point. <laughs> when, 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 when your high school students have gray hair, it doesn't yeah. resonate no. as deeply. Yeah, when you're a high school student that we, we the stock go up for uh, Greece and Farmia, you know, the black guy, because we got these 25-year-old man high school students. And it, so, and also I have to have a teacher and a social worker on the set at all times. Mm -hmm. And because of COVID, I still have to consider that because we're going to shoot this in August. So, um, but it's a wonderful story. And my last short film, by the way, my last short film, The McHenry Trial, won me over 200 awards across international and LA, I mean, in the United States. It won me over 200 awards. And I truly believe this one is going to do even better. Mm -hmm. And getting back to you guys as improv and comedy, one of the reasons that I think you would enjoy this because as a comic, you know how to bring out uh, likeness and a good comedy, even if it's a drama. And I have some wonderful things that are going to make you chuckle with Dr. King and all of them because I, I featured them in there. So I it's, it, you know, and, and you know, uh, when a comedian is writing drama, he's going to find a way to bring some little nuances in there that a person who's just serious don't do. I don't say can't do, don't do. Right. Because humor is such a, such a wonderful um, coping mechanism as well when it comes to dealing with the harsh realities that we're always going to, I mean, that's where sarcasm comes in, you know, <laughs> like that's, yes. that's just how we, you know, cope as humans and it's so important to have it in there. So I love that you have that perspective too. It's a release valve. We need yeah. it. <laughs> you know, humor keeps you out of the psychiatrist, off the psychiatrist's couch. <laughs> <laughs> I can speak from experience. I, I, I displayed a lot of humor on the psychiatrist's couch. Yep. <laughs> But no, this is this is great, and I, I, it's so, um, it, it's so great to hear that you know, with with you doing the you know Nightmare on Elm Street three, and then you know appearing in four, that your career really just blossomed into all of these different mediums, and you were able to continue being you know the creative young kid that you were, and writing and directing and doing you know theater, and um, it's just really great. You hear I, that, Ken's body? There's still youth in there. <laughs> yes, there's still and, and just so you know, I started an organization in 1997 called Giving Back. And every year I also send kids to camp. And I also give out a, at least 10 scholarships to college-bound students to buy, pay for their books. All the things that I couldn't have as a child, I make sure... I give to someone's child 
now, you know, so, you know, this is the religious me coming out. If God should, it's time to come home, I want to be able to say I was doing my part, you know. Well, I, I think you can say even more than that, to be honest. You're just, you're such an inspiring, I mean, I love it. You're, you're just the epitome of, you know, hard people are good people. <laughs> I, I, you know, and I'm saying this here to you all so you can have it on record. I, <laughs> one, one of my dreams is that I've always wanted to be able to perform in New York. So I'm serious about that improv thing. I, <laughs> You would love it. You would. You, we would have a blast. It would be so fun. You gotta set this up and talk about it. And you know, and you know, I'm gonna come out there. I, I come out there on my own time, and for a week, and so I can do the improv. We can practice or whatever. I really want to do it. I used to do improv, so. I well, do prior to the pandemic, we used to do the show in a basement of a midtown bar on the first Saturday of just about every month. Now, I don't know if this bar still exists, but I do know that I will keep in touch with you. <laughs> and once things are clear, we're going we're gonna to do a few shows ahead of time to make sure it's safe because, you know, I treasure you and, uh, you know, we're, we're going to make sure everything's cool. Everybody's vaccinated. It's healthy. Because this, this bar, I loved it. I miss it so much. But it was hot and unventilated. So... <laughs> With an airborne virus, you know, people would frequently say, oh, if things open up, are you going to do a show? And I said, I'm not going to put my people in jeopardy yet. In no. some off, 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 off Broadway type of theater. <laughs> in a bar that really only made its basement available because other improvisers from different institutions, some of which are not open anymore, thanks, Corona, uh, that's why they have improv in this bar. I don't even know if they still exist. We're going to find out. But yeah, it would be an honor. It's certainly been an honor to talk to you. I ask all of our listeners, if you can, you know, you got that stimulus money burning a hole in your pocket. <laughs> what better way than to put it towards something better? And I've said it before on this podcast. Uh, we need artists. Artists got you through this pandemic, be it at home on your couch, streaming something, or with your earbuds jammed in your ear, helping you get through. And, you know, I mean, it's okay for, you know, the musicians that can plug into any country with electricity and rock out. Uh, the, the, the actors and the filmmakers that this didn't really affect them too much. They got to stay home in their swim pool and be cool. It's the, it's the artists uh, much closer to the ground that needs support. So whether it's Bandcamp, whether it's Indiegogo, whether it's going to the SagosCompany.com directly to help these artists tell us stories that may not fit into the mainstream category, but may be more important than those big CGI tales that, you know, we like to escape with. This is a wonderful uh, project that I think needs to see the light of day, Ken. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really do appreciate it. And you must have me back. <laughs> so. Absolutely. Anytime you want to come back, I, I, I know some people personally that I, I don't like to talk about who we've got, uh, slated for a future guest. 
outside of, of Chelsea and some people I'm very close to, because sometimes things don't work out or they get delayed or some guess it takes a year for their schedule to open up or what have you. But I, I let it slide to a couple people and their reaction was akin to, holy shit. <laughs> so yeah, anytime you want to come on any project you want to plug, uh, if you just want to shoot the shit. And if you come out to New York, we can do this in person. And and because I got hugs stored up for a year that people need to get, Chelsea included. Um, our door is always open for you, Ken. I thank you so much for allowing me to talk to somebody who kind of unknowingly put me on a, a little more righteous path at a formative age than I could have imagined without you. I, I thank you. But know that wherever you put me, you have, wherever I put you, you have put me. And that's so important. So, you know, if I'm flying anywhere and I look behind, it's the horror fan wind that's keeping me up here. And I appreciate that. I appreciate you and I appreciate Chelsea for you coming on and talk, especially being from Alabama. You, you got it. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And you're and you're um I read on the Indiegogo you're gonna film it in Birmingham, right? No, I'm going to do the exterior. Oh, the exterior in LA, in Birmingham. Okay, that's great. In LA. So, you know, and it because I can't afford to I would love to. Mm -hmm. Oh so much. I'm, God, I'm sure. It's just gonna be a wonderful project that everybody's gonna love because you know. Uh, this is not going to be one of those stories where you're focusing on, you know, the Dr. Kings and the Rebel mm -hmm. Fred, all the legends. This is coming from the children's point of view. Yeah, it's going to be it, such a great perspective. A little interracial love story involved. That's all I'm going to tell you. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're giving a good tease there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no. and, but because of what's going on, it could never happen. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a wonderful story. So I ask again and again to my horror family, my horror friends, if you can support me on this endeavor, please, please do. Now, normally this is where I tell, or I would rather I ask our guests if they want to read or let anybody know uh, where to find them on social media. But since you've confessed to it, I'm going to handle that plug for you, uh, Ken, if, I, if you'll permit me. Yes. Okay. Uh, at Ken Sagos on Twitter. And let me bring up the Instagram. I believe it's also at Ken Sagos. You can, yes, at Ken Sagos. You and can follow him. That's K-E-N-S-A-G-O-E-S. -E -E you can follow him and find out all the pertinent information. And all the links. Instagram is where I am. I very rarely go to Twitter, but it's Instagram. Mm. Instagram? Cool. Yes, Instagram. And, you know, um, and to follow me on um, Facebook, it's the sagoscompany.com. Uh, just type in the ones that says for the horror fans. And you can get all the good stuff on there. Chelsea, where can people find you if they want to find you? Um, I am primarily on 
Twitter and Instagram, just at, uh, when you type in Chelsea Bennington, I'm the first one that pops up. Cool. You can find Spooky Doings on Instagram, Spooky Doings Improv on Facebook. One of these days, we're going to do another show, and you know, Ken's going to join us, and he's going to be bashed in the red light after he improvises some way to kill me, <laughs> and uh, we're going to have a great time. So we'll have a great time. And if you fail and can't find me, go to Facebook, send me a message, and I'll call you. Love it. <laughs> Love it. You're going to make Rick cry. <laughs> go to Facebook, send me a message. I will call you. Love it. Well, by the first. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Fun this short film. It's going to be worth it. And to all our listeners, yeah, just boop that link in the show notes right after that. For in the meantime and in between time, everybody stay good, stay healthy, stay spooky. Thank you, Ken. Much Bye. love to you. Much love. It was, it's been a pleasure. Right. See you later. Bye. And Chelsea, I love you as well. Oh, I love you too. I love you both. All right. <laughs>